Well, there was a man from the backwoods of Tennessee, a real rocky top kind of dude, you know what I'm saying, who one day went to the big city. He and his youngest son went to the big city, and uh, they came across one of them fancy elevators. You like my, like my twang there? I practiced that a couple times. So this backwoods dude, a real rocky, cop, rocky top kind of guy with his youngest son, goes to one of the big cities, and they find one of these big, you know, newfangled elevators. And so they weren't sure how it worked, so, so he stood there for a few minutes, just kind of watching, you know, what worked and, and how it operated, because he wasn't too sure about this thing. And so he sees this old, haggard woman just sort of hobble onto the elevator, and the doors close, and uh, they just stand there watching. And a couple minutes later, the doors open, And this young, attractive woman marches smartly away from the elevator. And this backwoods guy says, leans over to his youngest boy here and says, Son, hurry up and go get your mother. (laughs) Sad. Change doesn't really happen that way, does it? Change doesn't happen by microwaving people in an elevator and you wait a couple minutes and presto change oh automatically life is different that's just not how change happens change in fact is nothing like that change comes hard doesn't it change doesn't come easy it comes hard because change comes with a cost change never comes easy I know that in my life, there are quite a few things that I would like to change. I could stand here for the next 25 minutes of this sermon telling you just about these kinds of things in my own life. I know that there are lots of things in my life that I want to change. I would like to weigh 200 pounds, have a 32-inch waist, and be able to bench press 300 pounds, (laughs) which means I would have to lose 20 pounds four inches off my waist, and exercise really, really hard and give up Oreos. But I really like Oreos. (laughs) So I guess I'll just keep donating to the Y and get used to weighing about 220-ish. I would like to have six to eight months of a rainy day emergency fund tucked away as well as a 401k that will get me and my family through my retirement years. But that would require a whole lot of change, a whole lot of lifestyle change, and not having three kids. And those are changes I'm not yet willing to make. It would require some really serious lifestyle changes in my life to get to that place. But, you know, I've got to keep donating to the Y, so... That's a change for me that is coming really hard and very slowly. Here's the truth about life. Here's the truth about people. Here's the truth about the hunger for change. People want change, but they don't want to change. Everybody wants change, but people don't really want to have to change. There was a well-known Cambridge 
classicist, a, a man of books and letters uh, around the turn of the 20th century. His name was Dr. Cornford. Dr. F.M. Cornford was quite a wit, and he had a lot of good things to say about human behavior. And he said this about change. We'll put this on screen for you. Nothing is ever done until everyone is convinced that it ought to be done and has been convinced for so long that it is now time to do something else. Many people have sort of a personal philosophy of refusing to change. (laughs) Their personal philosophy is come high, come low, my status is quo. But truly, in here, most people want to change. Most people want to take a few inches off, save some more money, find some more peace, spend some more time with family. And we go on and on to lists like that. I mean, a lot of people talk about wanting or needing change, but taking actual steps toward change usually feels like, as soon as you begin to do it, too much change. A lot of us need some change in our lives. A lot of us need some drastic change in our lives. Maybe like me, you need to stop eating Oreos like you're a teenager because you're 42 and your body doesn't respond like it used to. Maybe you need to stop spending money you don't have because that places your family in financial jeopardy and insecurity. Maybe you need to stop watching TV or, or Netflix or, or YouTube and stop turning your heart and your mind into this sort of media-filled mush. Because what you need to do is read and study your Bible as if it's the Word of God that feeds you instead of a steady diet of, of the sort of empty pablum and drivel that's out there in the world. Maybe that's one of the changes you need. Maybe you need to stop living in fear Uh, Maybe you need to stop living for others' approval. Maybe you need to stop being wishy-washy and commit and take responsibility. Maybe you need to stop emoting, uh, emoting all over everybody else around you, sort of emotionally vomiting on everybody else around you and learn some emotional self-control. Maybe you need to stop being constantly negative. Maybe you are a crotchety jerk who is mostly discouraging. Maybe on the inside, right here, in places you don't like to admit or talk about, you need to stop hating people who are not like you. Maybe you need to stop being a gossip. Maybe you need to stop looking at porn. Maybe you need to stop being an addict. Maybe you need to stop being an abuser. Somewhere, all of us have something that just flat out has to change. So what do you need to change? For everyone, There is some sort of serious change that needs to happen in your life. But frankly, for most people, taking steps to even admit the need for that kind of actual change doesn't happen. They're waiting, honestly. They're waiting for someone else to change. 
something else to change, somewhere outside of them to change before they themselves will take actual steps to change. Everyone wants to change, but nobody wants to change. And yet we long for it. We hunger for it. Get some years on you, get away from some youth, get away from some pride, and you start to realize something's got to give. The world's messed up. These parts of my own life are messed up. Something's got to give. A lot of people are caught right here, though. A lot of people are delusional, thinking that positive change is going to happen in your life without any personal cost to you. And that's delusional. But that's actually where a lot of people are. Truth be told, that's where a lot of people actually function from day to day in their lives. I want things to get better, but I'm not going to actually work toward them being better in a way that requires something from me. That's what we call delusional. (laughs) Because that's not how the world works, but that's where a lot of people actually try to function. So let me state things plainly. If you are not willing to take actual steps toward personal change, then you are lying to yourself and those around you, and you have merely convinced yourself that you want change. And everybody's response at this point in the narrative is, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, but I don't know how to change. At which point we can say, ah, finally. Now you can start to change. Because then you know that your own human willpower and ingenuity and stick to and pride ain't going to change it. Because you're right. You can't. You can try and try. But unless a transaction between you and God takes place, you're not going to change. Mercifully, mercifully, the Word of God speaks into that tension. Mercifully, God gave us Jesus to show us how real change works. Because the Word of God, friends, is about real power for change. You can hear every narrative from the world out there you can possibly have. You can read all the self-help books that you can find. And all of those narratives will only take you so far until you give in to the truth that it is the Word, the truth of God alone, that brings real power for change. And so that's where we hit it at Luke 3. This is what John the Baptist introduces us to is real power for change. And that's what Christmas is about. Read along with me in Luke 3. We'll go through uh, slower than uh, we read the passage earlier. Just a little bit at a time to see what Luke is trying to tell us here through John the Baptist and how that relates to real power for change. It says this, Luke 3, start there at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. By the way, I think, isn't Trachonitis what you get from eating raw meat? Okay. 
<laughs> and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, who obviously was a Texan. So we've got all these names, all these places listed. And then it says this, verse 2, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, now stop halfway here through verse 2 here. Why does Luke list all of these names and these places? For a couple of reasons. Partly, he wants to legitimize this account as historical. And, and that's a good thing. He wants to legitimize the account here of Jesus and John the Baptist by locating them within history. Uh, but these names and these places that are listed here do more than just kind of legitimize the history. They do more than just kind of validate that Jesus and John were real figures. Luke is, is telling us those who are in power at the time, he's listing them there from the distant, from the distant and the most powerful down to the closest and the least powerful. That's how he lists it here. To focus the scene from the world's powers, from the world's powers down to the local level where Jesus can make real change happen. He's bringing the scene into focus from all of these well-known people and their worldly power structures so that he can introduce us to Jesus who alone deserves center stage. That's where Luke is headed with the narrative here. And so Luke proceeds to tell us about all these world powers and say, we're coming down to Jesus. And guess who introduces Jesus? Because Jesus has a personal MC and announcer. And it's John the Baptist. And so that's why he says here in verse 2, keep reading, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, press pause for a bit here. We're going to spend some time on the end of verse 2 here. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Luke is saying, now this here is real power. This here is real power. Luke takes us from the greatest power in the world, <laughs> Tiberius Caesar. Rome was... Uh, the biggest city in the world. It's the seat of world power. And he takes us from Tiberius Caesar to the middle of nowhere in the desert to a guy who eats locusts and honey and wears a dress with a leather belt around it. Caesar has people fanning him and handing him grapes to eat. And John the Baptist eats bugs. Huge contrast. Luke makes the contrast intentional. And the contrast here for Luke is that Luke wants us to know that real, happen, real power happens in response to the Word of God. That's why he lists all of these worldly powers. In Rome, the largest city in the world at the time, the first city to reach over a million ever. He's saying, that's what you think of as power. But let me show you, let me show you. Come over here, listen to this guy screaming in the desert who eats locusts and wild honey. Who would pick him to tell you about where power comes from? No sane person looking at it on the outside. But he says, the word of God came to this guy. John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now he's pointing out this truth here. He talks about being in the wilderness. He talks about the word of God coming to John. 
because it has been 400 years since the people of God had heard from him. They called this 400 years, about 430 years, they called this 400 years of time between the Old and the New Testaments, the silence of God, because there were no prophets to speak for God at the time. And so the people of God sort of felt lost. And for these hundred, hundreds of years, these 400 years, they had suffered oppression at the hands of the Greeks and the Syrians and the Romans. And finally, during that time of oppression, not hearing from God, this prophet comes in the middle of the wilderness. There's even a cool bit of information here that Luke is alluding to when he says he's the son of Zechariah. This is no small and unimportant detail to just kind of pass over. In telling us that John was Zechariah's son, Luke is reminding us of some important backstory. So check this out. John's father, Zechariah, was a priest. And he and his wife were old. But before John the Baptist was born, an angel comes and tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son. He will be full of the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the children of Israel back to God. And he is going to make them ready for God to return. <laughs> Zechariah hears this from the angel. and He says, um, I feel like I don't need to remind you of this, God, but we are, shall we say, advanced in years. And I'm not sure how you're going to make this happen, but I'm not thinking this is actually possible. At which point the angel says, and suddenly Zechariah can't even talk. Suddenly Zechariah is is silent. The angel says, it's time for you to stop talking. So he stopped speaking, meaning he was unable to speak. He is silent because he didn't believe the truth of God's word from the angel. Are we tracking? Let's keep heading forward here. So then, when John the Baptist finally is born, Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, Zechariah is able to speak. So so let's put it all together again. There had been 400 years of the people thinking that God was silent. Zechariah's own belief, his disbelief, his distrust in the word of God resulted in silence. And then comes John the Baptist, the son of a man whose name means God remembers, is is, is called upon to shout repentance, to shout in the wilderness And among the silence to say, God's coming back. He's going to do what he started. He's going to finish this. He's coming back. So there had been a whole lot of silence. And then suddenly there was speaking by a guy who lives in the desert, who eats bugs, and whose dad is named God remembers. God is speaking truth into that silence. So that was John's mission to speak truth about what real power for change looks like, to uproot the world's power structures and to say, you think you know about power. You think Caesar has power. You think those in that big city have power. They know nothing. Let me show you real power. So verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. 
It says in the first half of three, he went into all the region around the Jordan. This region around the Jordan was all wilderness. And the wilderness for the ancient Near Eastern peoples was a place of mystery. It was an unsafe place. There is no water. Food is hard to raise or to grow. Wild animals lived there. And that's the place where John the Baptist lived and ministered and brought his message, which means, track with me, the people had to physically leave the city to hear his message. They had to physically go out from their homes and the security and safety of the city that they knew to hear his message. This is more than just a cute metaphor. Leaving one's comfort and power structures and securities are necessary for being able to hear the word of God. So this isn't just a cute metaphor for, oh, this guy's out in the wilderness. Boy, isn't he crazy. They had to go to him to hear this guy who nobody would choose to speak about power tell them about what real power looked like. And it says, verse 3, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here is the beginning, friends. Here's the beginning of change. Embedded in this word repentance the Bible has the key to real change. Two factors. Feeling sorry before God for what you've done wrong and turning your mind and heart toward His truth. If you don't get those two main components, feeling sorry before God for what you've done wrong and turning your mind and heart toward God's truth, if you don't get those two main components, there is no hope for truly changing. You will continue to create a world around you that's based on your human willpower. And pride won't get you far. Simple as that. And when you bow in repentance, when you bow in sorrow before God and you turn toward His truth, whether you're a Christian or you're not, then the environment is set in you inside your heart for change. That's what creates the environment for change. No self-help book. No pills. No nothing. A heart change is the only change where God can go in and do His real work. And sorrow before God and turning toward His truth are the two main components embedded in that word repentance that create an environment for the kind of change that you and I long for. If you don't get that, it won't matter how amazingly you do anything else. You'll just be moving around the pieces on the game board of your life. Verses 4 to 6 corroborate this. It says this, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Notice it doesn't say the voice of one calmly making a rational argument in the wilderness. It doesn't say the voice of one wisely suggesting that perhaps this might be something you'd want to consider. This is the voice of one saying, 
This is the only way. John the Baptist came with some passion. The voice of one crying. That word crying has the connotation of an impassioned plea. Like you must do this. It all depends on this at base level. John the Baptist wouldn't last 10 minutes in most pulpits probably nowadays. And here's his plea. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. In that day before a king would take a long trip, they would actually send messengers ahead to physically prepare the roads for the coming king. That may sound like overkill, but it's not a whole lot different today. When the president comes to town, the Secret Service sends a team ahead to make sure everything's in order for the arrival. They work with local police and government officials and agencies, and they plan ahead for many months. When the day of travel arrives, they have armed agents who run alongside the car and scan the crowds for possible bad guys. They make sure they go the safest route possible. They may even have decoy cars taking separate routes just to be safe. Preparing the roads for the arrival of the king is a necessary component that's a response from us. Prepare the way for the Lord to have a smooth road into you for change. You see, friends, a lot of us will continue to erect obstacles in our lives that push that process back, that hinder the process of God making work happen in us. And so John says, prepare for God to come into you by being repentant. And friends, I think that's, that's something if you're not a believer and you need to become a believer, that happens. If you are a believer and you need to continue to open yourself to the work of God, which is all of us, that repentance must continue to happen. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is a way of life for those who want to continue to become who God made them to be. Repentance opens the door of your heart to the work of God. Unless you experience that repentance, sorrow before God for wrongs and turning to his truth, unless you experience that kind of repentance, you're just spinning your wheels. Repentance is what makes the paths straight. Notice here that verse 4 uh, notice that verse 4 is not a passive activity. It suggests taking action. Which means we may need to tear down some obstacles that are preventing God from liberating us. From, from taking a step toward that change. And the first step toward change is repentance. And verses 5 to 6 are interesting. When you start to take those steps toward change and re repentance, you will be joining the rest of creation in an openness to God's work of fixing the world. That's why it says this in verses 5 and 6. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall shall see the salvation of God. What God is doing in the world, what God is doing in, in Jesus 
as he comes at Christmas is he is putting things back together. He is fixing the brokenness that we see and experience. And John the Baptist is inserted in every Christmas story, in all four of the Gospels, for a very important reason. In in, in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John the Baptist is emphasized for two main things. Number one, he preached repentance. Number two, he announced Jesus' arrival. Those two main factors are in all four of the Gospels, and not a whole lot of stuff makes all four of the Gospels. Only real important highlights make all four Gospels. So number one, he preached repentance. Number two, he announced Jesus' arrivals. In other words, you don't get to Jesus without going through John the Baptist. You don't get to Jesus without repentance. I think we act about Christmas and about our Christian lives sometimes like we can get to Jesus whenever we want and repentance need not be a part of that process. If I can just make the trees pretty enough, if I can just have enough ambiance in my life, in my Christian walk, I can have this sort of sense of Jesus. We know from parts of the New Testament and the way Jesus talked, you don't put window dressing on one's life and call it change. You don't get to Jesus without repentance. A sorrow for sin and a turning for Him to truth. Turning to Him for truth. That is what makes change possible. It's what makes the path straight for God to get into your heart. Listen, I I don't know where you need change, but you do, and God does. Which means the necessary transaction is between your heart and between your heart and God. A transaction where you express sorrow for sin and you turn to Him alone for guidance. Listen, friends, Jesus didn't just come to make you better at living your life and achieving your earthly goals. He came with a mission to the world to establish the kingdom of God. He came to change hearts. And if you are content to just being better at living your life, but you haven't embraced the mission of changing hearts, then there's something you don't understand about why the baby in the manger came in the first place. Jesus didn't just come to establish a holiday of nice presents and food and pretty trees. Jesus came for something much more significant, to strike at the heart of evil by calling us to repentance. Friends, that is Christmas. That's what Jesus came to make available to us. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that uh, at some level for all of us there is a need for repentance. There is a need for us to bow 
before you admitting that we have failed and raising our hands openly to you to guide us, to fill us with your truth. For we have lived lies. We have given in to idols that fail. We have followed after things not worthy of our hearts. So Lord, wherever we are in our process, we ask that you'd continue to shape us, that you would make of us a repentant people, that we would have a hunger for change, that we would continue to open ourselves with each day to you speaking truth into our hearts, so that those areas of our lives that we keep you out of, we would open up to you. And we would make you Lord of those areas, acknowledging that you are Lord of the universe. Father, give us strength and courage to take a step of change, in those places where we know we need it. Give us courage that through your Holy Spirit you reassure us that we're doing what's good and right in making those steps. We're grateful, Lord, for a a church family. We're grateful for other believers around us. We're grateful for uh, your written word for us that instructs us. We're grateful for your lived word, Jesus, that was a model for us and who gave us who gave us the ability to uh, to trust because he lived for us a perfect and a sinless life that made up for our failures and that assuaged your your just wrath at sin Lord we love you for that and we open ourselves to continually becoming who you made us to be as a result. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We want simply to invite you to respond to uh, this message of repentance. If there's something for which you need repentance, uh, we would love to join with you in that. This is uh, a place where that's a good thing. It's an encouraged activity. Uh, it's real easy to, to live in this lie that, that that's not an okay thing to do. Uh, but we want to say that's a good thing to do. And you have people around you who can be uh, with you in that and a friend to you during those kinds of decisions. Uh, so if that's a decision you've not made but you need to for the first time publicly today declare, I am sorry before God and I have to turn to him. We'd love to have you do that today. Uh, Perhaps in the waters of baptism, dying to that old way, that old prideful way of self and being raised to new life and freedom in Christ. If you have something you want to pray about, talk about, we'd love to do that as well. So that's the invitation for us all as we stand and as we sing together.